Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In Canada, the opioid crisis has killed thousands of people and continues to claim more lives each and every day. In August, British Columbia marked its third straight month with over 170 deaths by overdose, and its fifth straight month with over 100 lives lost. In the country's westernmost province, opioids have been deadlier than the COVID-19 pandemic, a pandemic which has further complicated the opioid crisis itself. While there is no panacea for this issue, there are policies that can reduce harm and save lives. Those policies require political will and cooperation across federal, provincial, and municipal jurisdictions. To date, these political efforts have been slow and insufficient. More must be done, and done quickly. To better understand what that more is, we must ask, how can we solve the opioid crisis? My guest in this episode of Open to Debate is Travis Lupik, a Vancouver-based, award-winning journalist and author of the 2018 book, Fighting for Space, How a Group of Drug Users Transformed One City's Struggle with Addiction. Okay, so let's start by establishing some context. The opioid crisis has been ongoing for years across the country and in other countries. It's particularly serious in British Columbia and especially in Vancouver. In Vancouver. We've lost thousands of lives. Before and during the crisis, experts identified and continue to identify how we can reduce harm and save lives. And yet we seem to be getting only partway there. So can you run me through some of the policies that have been recommended? And then after that, we'll get into what's been adopted and what hasn't. Yeah, well, like you said, thousands dead um, since really 2013, 2014, 2015, different people use different dates for the start of this crisis. Um, but thousands dead over just the last few years even. And what's largely to blame is is fentanyl, a synthetic opiate, similar to heroin, but significantly more toxic. And so a lot of the policy recommendations that we're going to discuss have been uh, trying to address this deadly drug supply, trying to minimize the number of deaths that are caused specifically by fentanyl. That's really what British Columbia's overdose crisis is, a, a fentanyl crisis. Fentanyl shows up in more than 90% of, uh, of the victims of overdose here. Some of the policy recommendations that activists, uh, advocates, drug users themselves have suggested um, could help minimize those deaths include things like supervised injection facilities where people can bring drugs and inject them safely under the watchful eye of a, a nurse or some other sort of supervisor, someone who's trained in overdose response. Um, a similar similar policy is to send sort of overdose response patrols through at-risk neighborhoods like the downtown east side. Um, so sort of teams of people trained to uh, use the overdose reversal drug naloxone and sort of sent out to patrol alleys. Um, and then there's a regulated supply, which I think we'll probably get into more in a minute. But um, that's um, essentially the medical distribution delivery of pharmaceutical alternatives to illicit street drugs. Um, the idea being, if people are going to use drugs anyways, let's offer them a safer a safer alternative. Now, there'll be a second episode in this. This is the two-part series. There'll be a second episode that gets into decriminalization. But I, I want to just highlight that as something that will be sort of hanging over this conversation as well, because 
Um, of course, there's always decriminalization and, and legalization as well. Uh, but I want to get into what's been adopted and what hasn't and why. So, you know, your work is primarily in British Columbia, but I'm curious about how British Columbia is approaching this and how that might stack up to other jurisdictions, for instance, Ontario. Uh, we can sort of stay inside Canada if you want, but, you know, what's getting adopted and what isn't? Yeah, one thing that the government, um, all levels of government really, uh, have done a really good job um, doing and responding to this fentanyl crisis is expanding access to supervised injection um, to making it easier for people um, to find a safe place to come and inject drugs under a supervised setting. This really began in 2016 when the federal liberal government began uh, scaling back uh, the red tape around these sites. Supervised injection has actually been legal in, in Canada since 2003, but the former conservative government um, while acknowledging the Supreme Court of Canada had said supervised injection is legal, really didn't make it all that easy to open a site. In fact, they made it all but impossible. And that's why from 2003, when North America's first supervised in injection facility insight was established from 2003, right up until 2016, for 13 years, there was only that one site in all of Canada. Because even though they were legal, the, the former conservative government in Ottawa made, made it all but impossible to, to for local governments to establish such, such sites. So what happened in 2016 is the new liberal government under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, we're going to start cutting back this red tape that the conservatives put in place. And they actually did a really good job doing that. And that's why we now have dozens of supervised injection facilities in Vancouver, right across British Columbia and Canada. The the Prime Minister recently indicated that a safe supply was a priority. And while acknowledging that there were no silver bullets and sort of, I think, to some extent, dismissing decriminalization or at least certainly coming nowhere to committing to it. Uh, now, what about safe supply? How, how have we been making progress on it in British Columbia and, and beyond the, uh, the borders of B.C.? It's a bit of a complicated question, so stick with me. Okay. Um, first, let's separate decriminalization and legalization. Decriminalization deals with the demand side of illicit drug use. It says we're no longer going to hold criminal penalties for the personal possession of drugs. So it basically says, say you get stuck with a, a rock of crack cocaine or you get caught with a little bit of heroin on you. Instead of, of taking you to jail, police are going to say, this is no longer a criminal offense. Um, maybe we'll issue you a fine. Maybe we'll just let you go on your way. We're not sure exactly what it's going to look like, but decriminalization deals with the demand side of drug use, and it says we're going to drop criminal penalties. Prosecutors have been instructed to sort of ignore possession uh, to small amounts. Very of recently. Right? I mean, in yes. August, I think, or something like that, right? And even and, and the police, just to, to, to build some context, even the police chiefs association has come out in support of decriminalization. Yeah, the association of police chiefs, you know, the sort of organizations of the heads of police departments right across Canada came out a couple months ago, a few months ago, saying we don't want to bust people for possession anymore. Uh, Vancouver's police department has been saying this for years. Uh, Vice just did a great article where they contacted every single um, major cities, uh, health director, sort of the top doctor in each city, 
um, and sort of surveyed them on whether they think decriminalization is a good idea. And just about everyone they contacted said point blank, yes, let's decriminalize drugs. So this is this is a question for the mainstream now. There's really actually a lot of support for this policy across Canada, you know, from conservative circles that you might not think it would be coming, from prosecutors, from government itself. Okay, and so that's decriminalization. And now if you can take us briefly through legalization. Legalization uh, begins with decriminalization, and then it takes the next step. Instead of only dealing with demand, also deals with supply. So, uh, and Canada has some experience here. We just legalized and regulated cannabis. Right now, now that system that we have in place for cannabis is very likely not what you would see for the legalization of hard drugs. You wouldn't see storefronts, you wouldn't see advertisements, you wouldn't see social media accounts and that sort of thing. It would very likely be regulated much harder. But, and which is why I actually prefer that word. Instead of legalization, I think we, the better word might be regulation because it would involve so much regulation. Um, but so that's decriminalization versus legalization. Decriminalization is the, is the first step. Legalization is the second step that begins with decriminalization. Yeah, actually, I want to chase one of these points down a little bit. I mean, it's because you, you bring up something important, which is the, the cannabis industry was plainly waiting for legalization. It was very quickly co-opted by corporate interests and, and by those who had, even those who had previously prosecuted folks for marijuana, then became entrepreneurs, quote unquote, in the business. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't imagine seeing heroin shops like you see cannabis shops, but can you imagine a world in which we see mushrooms or uh, uh, psychedelics sold? Yeah, I think that would be, you know, that's one of many big questions in, in what's becoming this mainstream debate on decriminalization and legalization. Um, I, I, I think that it is widely recognized that psychedelics like mushrooms and, and acid and that sort of thing are relatively harmless compared to hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. Um, they're also uh, not very addictive. Um, so people don't, you know, start using mushrooms on a daily basis or anything like that. Um, and arrest numbers for psychedelics are already so low that, you know, they're like single digits for a city like Vancouver. Um, so it's not something that police really bother with e even today. Um, so I think that psychedelics, um, are possibly something that would, along with legalization, receive uh, lighter regulations like we see with cannabis. But these are these are the real big questions about what all this would look like, and which brings us back to your original question about safe supply and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, vocal support for safe supply. That's what I call um, medicalization, which sort of sneaks down the middle in between decriminalization and legalization. And medicalization, if we're going to call it that for the sake of this conversation, um, it is sort of a hybrid model where hard drugs are no longer criminal and we have a regulated supply where people can access them via the government, but the regulations are so high, so intense that we can't really call it legalization by you know any understandable, any under, simple understanding of the word. Uh, what legalization for hard drugs like cocaine and heroin would probably involve is a visit with a doctor, is a prescription, and is a visit. To a, low, to a medicalized setting for distribution. 
probably. Um, we do have an alternative model in Vancouver. Uh, there's an experiment underway where a low-strength opiates, a, a lower-strength opiate called <laughs> hydromorphone, um, dilated brand name, um, is available via sort of ATM device. It's been nicknamed a vending machine, but it's much closer to an ATM with security and all that. Um, so there are other models out there, but medicalization is probably the model that we're talking about when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says safe supply. Okay, and so... Okay, that, that gives us a sense of the of the policy terrain. Uh, let's get in now to the crisis itself and what it looks like on the ground. Now, you've been on the front lines of this reporting for years now. We'll talk about your book a little later, but you, you wrote a, a very, very good book that I highly recommend about the, called Fighting for Space with Arsenal, which is a great uh, publisher. Let, let's get into what it looks like. Uh, who is being affected by this crisis? Because when we think of the opioid crisis, we think of fentanyl crisis, it can seem abstract, or people have an idea of who's affected and how. But what are you seeing on on the front lines? Who's bearing the burden of this crisis? Everyone is bearing bearing the burden of this crisis. Um, You know, a a few years ago, or or five or six years ago, when I first started reporting on this, um, it was sort of like everyone knew someone who knew someone who had passed away of an overdose. And a few years ago, that changed. And now it's everybody knows someone who has passed away. Everybody. I mean, every single person I talk to in my professional and personal life knows someone who's died of an overdose in in British Columbia. Um, And that's really scary. You know, not everybody knows someone who's died of COVID-19. Um, not everybody knows someone who's died in a car accident or, or of HIV or of a gunshot. You know. um, but everybody knows someone who's died of an overdose. And so it really is yeah. affecting, it, it really is affecting all walks of life. Um, statistically, the fatality numbers are concentrated in young working class men. But Indigenous women are incredibly disproportionately affected, um, you, know, you know, adjusted for population much, much higher than they should be. Um, just last month, it was revealed that a local uh, celebrity sportscaster who died the previous year uh, died of a fentanyl overdose. Um, a friend of mine whose uncle was a judge in British Columbia, uh, that judge died of a fentanyl overdose. Um, that you know, there was um, an attractive couple on the North Shore who left behind a one-year-old baby. Um, it's it's everybody who's affected by this crisis, as, as well as you know what people think of the downtown east side. Right. So I mean, part of I, I remember being in British Columbia as this was this situation was developing. I was there until 2017, 2018. I was there around 2013. So I I saw it beginning and i saw there was a it it seemed to me there was a shift in the way we were talking about and thinking about it that corresponded to some extent with this changing idea of who this affected and it's this is the cynical part of me but i think it's a fair cynicism that as soon as the mainstream started thinking about this as as a problem beyond quote-unquote drug users that the tone shifted in how we talked about it and thought about it in the mainstream. Did you get that sense? Yeah, and that's what's happened with these things. You know, that's what happened during Vancouver's first overdose crisis of the 1990s. 
um, activists from the downtown east side had to make, uh, and this is a story I re- recount in my book, Fighting for Space, uh, activists from the downtown east side had to make a huge push out of the downtown east side, getting the attention uh, of people in Victoria, um, of people in the suburbs. And one of the ways that they did that was banding with um, West Side parents, you know, parents from Shaughnessy, parents from Kitsilano who had lost children to overdose. And that's happening again today. It's an, a wonderful, amazing group of mothers uh, who have formed an organization called Moms Stop the Harm, who do a lot of work with activists in the downtown east side. And those mothers, uh, quite consciously, um, quite deliberately, uh, use their privilege use the fact that they are white middle-aged people with money um, to help get the word out about this. Um, and and you know, you, you, sadly, that's what it's taken. Yeah, I mean, at some point, whatever works, works, right? I mean, it's, it's about reducing harm and saving and saving lives. Uh, I, I, want, I want to build off of something you said earlier, take us in a slightly different direction. You mentioned not everyone knows someone who's died of COVID. I, in fact, most of us probably don't aren't even moderately connected to it, aside from having to be concerned about it from our day-to-day lives. In August, I note this in the show introduction, in August in British Columbia, the province marked its third straight month with over 170 deaths by overdose, and its fifth straight month with over 100 lives lost. When you stack the effects and the lives lost from the crisis compared uh, against COVID, the the count isn't even close. However, the the pandemic seems to have made the the fentanyl crisis more challenging. So I'm curious about how the the pandemic and the crisis are interacting. Yeah, let's give a little more context there. I mean, I don't, I don't like to play this game, you know, where we compare one cause of fatalities to another. But at, at some point, I mean, come on. Yeah, like like 170 dead a month, you know, three months in a row, whereas we have like a dozen here, a dozen there attributed to COVID. I don't want to belittle those deaths, but come on, like one crisis is obviously more severe than the other here. And I know that there's big questions, you know, around how you transmit COVID and how you, how you procure drugs and, 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 you know, autonomy and power of choice and all of this. But come on, 170, 175 dead a month, three months in a row. Um, a quote-unquote normal number of overdose deaths in British Columbia before fentanyl arrived was 20 dead per month. And the last three months have been 170, 175 every month. So you know, eight times, eight times what was once considered normal every month. It's, 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 it's reached, you know, it's one of those numbers that kind of has lost its meaning. It's so high. And to get to your question, um, part of the reason why is COVID. Um, 170 dead per month is actually a number of fatal overdoses that we saw back in 2016 when fentanyl and then an even more dangerous synthetic drug called carfentanil uh, arrived in Vancouver. And then, I mean, and that's where the number stayed for a long time. It was horrible through 2016, 2017, 2018. It was horrible. 2019, we began to get a bit of a handle on this crisis. Uh, our deaths declined from 170 per month to 100 per month down to 60 per month. Um, we did begin to get a handle on this, and that was the success of some of the policies that we mentioned earlier. Supervised injection sites, overdose response teams, um, regulated or safe supply. And then COVID arrived. And, and 
COVID just, I mean, it just brought us back to the very worst days of this. The reason I bring up, I mean, I agree with you Ree, regarding not wanting to sort of compare deaths. And of course, the, the concern about COVID is keeping numbers low and keeping people alive. I, I just, to, just to clarify, I bring it up by way of saying that these are both extraordinarily serious, but interact interlocking problems. And I'm curious about, you know, what it is when we look at 170 deaths that is is driving that beyond the quote unquote normal of, of say 20. I mean, you know, part I, I'm assuming part of it is a, a bad supply or a dangerous supply. Part of it is people being out of work or stuck at home or or in a bad situation more generally because of the pandemic. Yeah, we have a, a few factors playing at once here. Um, one of the one of them at the very front, I believe, are uh, social distancing and self isolation orders. There's one message in response to the overdose crisis that authorities have hammered out harder than any other, and that is do not use alone. You know that is hard drug use 101. Do not use alone. And then COVID arrived. <laughs> And we're telling people, uh, isolate yourselves, uh, socially distance, stay in your apartments alone. And I think that that order in direct um, contradiction to our orders for the overdose crisis has resulted in a lot of deaths. It's come with no guest policies and a lot of social housing sites. So we're actually regulating people, uh, people's uh, loneliness, uh, telling them that, that they actually don't have a choice. They must remain alone. Um, I think that those um, preventative measures, uh, rightly so adopted for COVID, are, however, having terrible consequences for the overdose crisis. Um, you mentioned that there's a lot of people out of work. Uh, that's true as well. You know, unemployment's never been higher. Um, and going back all the way to the Great Depression, at least. Um, so a lot of people are out of work. That makes them unhappy. Um, there is some concern around the uh, economic relief checks, the unemployment checks that the federal government has sent out, and a sort of um, quick influx of money that that's created. And then there's uncertain supply. Um, the international narcotics trade has been significantly disrupted by COVID-19 with borders closed and that sort of thing. Um, and that's led street-level dealers to sort of... Um, have to spread things a little bit, uh, a little bit wider. Spread things a little bit thinner, so to speak. And so they're introducing different cutting agents. They're introducing more fentanyl to, to let their product go further. Um, it's all of these things together, I think, that have contributed to this resurgence of the opiate epidemic during COVID nineteen. Which, which presumably then makes it even more important for there to be a safe supply to which dr drug users have access. Immediately, right? I mean, I, I say this by way of getting at the idea that you might think the pandemic and the opioid crisis are separate, or you might think that, oh, we've got to focus on the pandemic right now because this is the major pressing thing, but these issues are interconnected. Yeah, they're very much interconnected. And, um, you know, you said that this is the most pressing thing. Um, I was interviewing a uh, drug user organizer in Greensboro, North Carolina, late last night um, on this very subject, the intersection of COVID and the overdose epidemic. And um, Louise Vincent is her name. You know, she said, is COVID the most pressing thing? Because um, I've lost four friends this week to overdose and I've never lost anybody to COVID. Is In my world, this is not the most pressing thing. Um, and that just kind of that just kind of hit me like... 
they are different. And, you know, I'm, I'm a strong advocate for every, every preventative measure that we can put in place around COVID. Um, but some of those preventative measures are killing people who use drugs. And I think that's something that, that we need to talk about more and, and become more engaged on. You know, one of the problems that we have as a country and more, I think more broadly as a sort of Western tradition is our discomfort with asymmetry. And I blame liberalism, this idea that everyone is the same in the eyes of, for instance, the law or in the eyes of policy, everyone ought to be treated the same and everyone's treatment ought to be symmetrical and no one ought to get special X, Y, or Z. And we have this strange aversion to, to difference uh, in treatment or, or, or quote unquote special status. That goes way back. And in fact, if you look at this, the evolution of same-sex marriage in Canada, it's an interesting case study because one of the reasons it, it became, well, it was achieved, but also broadly accepted was that it was framed by legislatures and courts as uh, sameness, not difference. And so political scientist J. Scott Matthews writes about this. And, and it just drives on this idea that we, we have a problem with thinking that there are cases where people need to be treated differently. And I wonder how we can think about that in the context of, of COVID and opioids, that perhaps in some cases we just need different rules for different sorts of people if we're going to save lives. Yeah, we're, we're getting a little out of my area of expertise here, but, I, but one example jumps to mind. Um, when COVID arrived in March 2020, social housing operators throughout British Columbia implemented these no-guest policies. Um, they said to prevent transmission of COVID, guests are, are guests to government buildings are limited, and that includes social housing sites. Um, all of you people living in your, you know, 350 square foot rooms are no longer allowed to bring guests into them. It makes a lot of sense to contain COVID, but it does not make a lot of sense when there's an overdose crisis going on and you're telling people do not use drugs alone. And I, you know, that policy remains in effect in a lot of social housing projects today, um, six months on. And I think has been and continues to be responsible for, for a lot of loss of life. Yeah. And it strikes me that every government it's in vogue these days to be a government that cares about evidence-based policy. And look, I mean, to, to be fair to the, new democratic government in British Columbia to the federal government, the liberal federal government in Ottawa, these are governments that often take evidence very seriously and the departments take evidence very seriously and the ministers do and the, the first ministers do, of course, as well, but not universally. I mean, you obviously there are cases where evidence is shelved or, or disregarded because presumably it's bad politics. And, and I want to come back around to sort of the first question at a different angle and, and, and get at, or the second question, and get at the, the degree to which politics has gotten in the way of, of saving lives and, and reducing harm. I mean, you, you know, you've mentioned that there have been wins, there, have been, there has been progress, but to what extent do you think politics has been gumming up the works? Well, we know it has been. Um, and international politics. I should just sorry to interrupt. I'm popping with this. And international politics as well. I'm thinking specifically with our relationship about a relationship with China. Well, sure. I, I mean, China and the United States. I mean, the global war on drugs is really the United States' war on drugs, right? Um, waged on a global scale, 
um, with governments around the world sort of bullied into enforcing rules in their own countries that the U.S. deems appropriate for the whole planet. Uh, and then, uh, sure, politics with China, um, at least in Canada. It's a bit different in the United States, but at least in Canada, uh, the majority of our fentanyl does come from China. Um, I think that gets us a little, a little off track because I think if fentanyl wasn't coming from China, it would be coming from somewhere else. Um, and when there's a demand for drugs, somebody's going to somebody's gonna feed it. But um, politics definitely, international politics definitely plays in here. Um, and domestic politics. So Justin Trudeau has been told by most of the country's chief medical health officers, as well as the country's prosecutors association, as well as the country's um, police chiefs, we believe that decriminalization would save lives. Here's the evidence on that. Uh, people point to models like Portugal, where they decriminalized drugs many years ago now, um, and say decriminalization save lives, saves lives. And Justin Trudeau says, well, we want to follow the evidence, but not on this question. And we know that's politics. There was a meeting held in Vancouver. Oh, I'm going to get the year wrong, but I believe it's early 2017, although I could be wrong about that. But there was a meeting in Vancouver in early 2017 where Justin Trudeau met with people on the front lines of the overdose crisis in the downtown east side, uh, representatives of the Portland Hotel Society and, and other groups like that. And they pressed the prime minister on decriminalization. And the prime minister said, I can't do it. We just, just did cannabis. I can't go further. The conservatives elite me. Um, that's, you know, pure politics. Uh, I, I can't do it because the conservatives will use it against me. And, and so we know that politics is interfering with how this liberal government in Ottawa uh, interprets the evidence. I mean, I, I understand that reasoning. I mean, I would imagine it goes something like this, that if, if we, the liberal government, try to decriminalize drugs, then we're going to lose. And if we lose, it's, we're, you're, you're going to be worse off with the conservatives than you are with us. And, and of course, this is how governments all over, including the liberal government, justify all kinds of, of foot dragging on on these issues. Uh, but it's not clear to me that that hypothesis is correct, that, no, uh, think, I mean, that, that you would lose because of it. In fact, even liberal supporters uh, are strong, strongly in favor of decriminalization. Well, the, the Liberal Party, in fact, yeah, it's interesting where the Liberal government opposes de decriminalization, but the Liberal Party has officially support, voted to support decriminalization. Um, it's an age-old tradition. Has some it's an age <laughs> politics is for the, the governments to ignore the party that, uh, that, that they happen to represent. <laughs> Right. I also think there might be some friction there between the uh, younger and older members of the party. Another great tradition. <laughs> yes. Um, which which all sort of underscores the point that um, that there is support for this. Um, you know, the Liberal Party itself, its members voted for decriminalization. Um, we've mentioned a couple of times the chiefs of police, the chief medical health officers, and prosecutors across the country. Um, none of those groups had come out in support of decriminalization um, back in 2017 during that meeting that I just mentioned. So the, the times are really changing here. And it might be time for the Liberal government to revisit this issue and really take a second gauge of whether or not uh, a policy in favor of decriminalization would actually harm their, their chances in the next election. Yeah, I, I very much agree. In fact, we're, we're going to have a second episode coming up after this in which we, we dig deep into that question. And, and well, I don't want to spoil the, 
<laughs> I, I mean, I, it, it, it's something that I find when I think about it and talk about, it, I become sort of incandescent with rage. And so I have to, you know, take a deep breath and recenter. So I'm going to take a deep breath and recenter uh, and come back to the opioid crisis. And more specifically, Vancouver's experience in your book. So we're into the final third of the episode. I, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your 2018 book, Fighting for Space, How a Group of Drug Users Transformed One City's Struggle with Addiction. You know, because as I mentioned before, you've been on the front lines of this reporting, observing, uh, doing work that not, not a lot of reporters were doing for years. And I'm curious, when you were researching the book and doing your reporting more generally with the Georgia Strait and, and beyond, uh, what you learned about uh, who these folks are, who users are, who frontline workers are, and uh, what, it, what it, that life looks like. Yeah, so I was um, I was reporting on the fentanyl crisis for the Georgia Strait when I began to get to work on that book, um, which primarily actually looks at being not not this overdose crisis, although although that is recounted, um, but primarily looks at Vancouver's first overdose crisis of the 1990s. Vancouver's been through something like this before in the mm-hmm. 1990s. We had 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 late 1990s, well mid to late 1990s, we had an explosion of overdose deaths. Um, HIV was burning through the city. There was an outbreak of hepatitis C. So all of these things at once were killing people who used drugs. And similar to what's happened today, in response, uh, drug users themselves banded together and said, "We're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to get the rest of the country, the rest of the city, and then the province, and then the country to realize what's going on here. How many of us are dying, and we're going to force them to do something about it." Very similar to what's happened today. It's been an absolute privilege. Uh, it was an absolute privilege researching, fighting for space, and getting to find time, um, getting time with those activists. Many of whom, many of whom, are still um, in the downtown east side today, still doing the same work. You know, I um, Anne Livingston is one of uh, the lead characters in the book. She is the co-founder of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. Um, really the country's foremost uh, advocacy group uh, for drug users, composed entirely of drug users themselves. And Livingston co-founded this group in 1997. And I was interviewing her about all this through 2016, through this terrible winter when fentanyl deaths just skyrocketed in Vancouver. And Anne Livingston was out there running an illegal injection site in the cold and the snow that we had that year, um, doing it all for free. And then she would go back to her apartment and we'd share a bottle of wine and she'd recount the 90s with me. And Anne was just in a terrible mood those nights. Um, I think she was very depressed because she'd lived through this before. Um, She'd lived through this overdose crisis of the 90s. And maybe she allowed herself to think she accomplished something. You know, we opened North America's first supervised injection facility in 2003 and Anne played a huge part in seeing that happen. And so to have to go through this all again, to go through the death, you know, to work volunteer nights out in those alleys, to have the police against you again, I think that that must have been very hard for her. And I think that that's another reason why this overdose crisis has been very hard for a lot of the activists that appear in Fighting for Space and appear on the front lines of of this overdose crisis. Well, I want to close out on by pursuing, uh, I think, one of the themes that has come up, certainly in your book, and in your work, 
but sometimes it gets marginalized more generally, which is agency. That we look at drug users and we sort of dismiss them. I mean, we, we caricature them and then we dismiss them as if they don't have agency. But one of the uh, of the important points that comes out of watching this crisis is that drug users have have agency. They have preferences. They organize. They push back. They know what they need and they know what they want and they know what's good for them and, and what's probably what's good for society more generally. And I wonder to what extent you think that agency has sort of been dismissed or, or marginalized by those in the mainstream. This is a, this is a really good final question um, because it's really the next step, the next battle in in Vancouver's harm reduction debate. Uh, we're talking about Vancouver is always you know described as on the forefront of harm reduction. First, it was needle exchange and then supervised injection, and now it's safe supply, regulated supply. And we have these experiments um, related to safe supply, the provision of prescription opiates as an alternative to those on the street. We have this experiment happening in quite a few places in Vancouver now. We have prescription heroin at Crosstown Clinic. We have prescription hydromorphone uh, under the Portland Hotel Society and a pharmacy they partner with. Um, and then these studies are beginning to be replicated across Canada at an experimental level, small scale. So Vancouver and Canada is described as on the forefront of harm reduction with these safe supply experiments, but they don't involve agency. Um, they involve uh, absolutely brutal amounts of red tape, mm. all sorts of hoops you have to jump through. And are only spoken of in a medical sense. You know, let's stabilize these people's lives. Let's do this to them. As opposed to asking the drug user, the person who's using drugs, um, what they want. And patronizing, and right? And sort of parochial and patronizing on top of it, right? It can be incredibly patronizing and parochial. I mean, yeah, parochial is the best word for it. Um, doctors saying how much someone gets doctors saying what drug they get whether it's low release or a morphine or hydromorphone or something similar methadone suboxone um, and what drug users actually say they want is agency is they want control over what they put in their bodies and that's not happening that's not being discussed in this safe supply conversation and i think it's something that needs to be well i I mean, I, I could talk about this for, for hours, and I'm, I'm thankful for your time and, and looking forward to sharing this and also the second episode that will that will follow it. So let, let's, I'm going to force myself to, to call it there, but hope that people will continue to pay close attention to this, that they'll follow your work, and that they'll hold their policymakers to account and insist that they do the right thing. Uh, for the right reasons. So, uh, first of all, my thanks to you, Travis Lubick, journalist, author of Fighting for Space, for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me, David. And it was entirely my pleasure. And, um, and uh, of course, thank you for your work. It, it makes a big difference. It brings us to the public in a way that not a lot of people can, and, and it makes a big difference. So thank you. And, of course, as always, thanks to those who make this show possible, Mira Ahmad, Luke Gilmore, Aaron Reynolds, and to all of you who are listening, we'll talk with you again soon. <laughs>